This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, definitely not eating in the bath. Apologies if you were listening to uh, yesterday's show. It's been quite a weird week on the uh, on the Times Radio show and here on the podcast. Anyway, coming up on today's episode, the NHS kills 150 people every week. I have to say, I didn't know that. I learned it reading a new book by Jeremy Hunt, the former health secretary, called Zero, How to Prevent Preventable Deaths in the NHS. I've been talking to him about the book, about how he thinks the culture of the NHS needs to change, and maybe there needs to be a change at the top of the Tory party too. It's the interview that everyone is talking about. You can hear it in full here on the podcast in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel, and on a Friday, it's... The Columnists with Formel, James Forsyth and Melanie Reid on Times Radio. Yes, delighted to be joined uh, this morning by... Good morning, James. Morning, Matt. Morning, Melanie. Morning. Nice to have you both with us. Now, there are lots of things causing uh, the Tories to be in a death spiral. Uh, Your column today, James, argues it's the housing crisis which has put them in most trouble. I think in the long term, this is the biggest threat to them. I and mean, Chris Patton always used to say that the facts of life are conservative. And I think mean, there is a truth to that. I think mean, that's why people tend to move to uh, the centre-right as they get uh, as they grow older. But the problem for the Tory party is the average age of a first-time buyer is now 34. It was 29 in the 1990s. And the more people delay getting going on the facts of life, the worse it's going to be for the Tories. Um, and do you think they're gripped by this? Uh, in any serious way. Is it is it that they don't realise it's an issue or, or don't care? Or is it that they do, they just can't work out what to do about it? I think it's a short-term, long-term problem, which is uh, the thing you would need to do in terms of liberalising the planning system and the like would be short-term unpopular. Um, the Lib Dems would run as kind of, you know, oppose this plan to build houses they did in Chesham and Amersham in the by-election there. Uh, and, you know, probably some Tory MPs might lose their seats and lots of them would have their majorities cut. But it's the long-term damage it's doing. And it's always the problem in politics. It's persuading the current set of politicians to take the short-term pain for uh, the the long-term gain. Actually, interesting with the uh, interview coming up with Jeremy Hunt, uh, where, you know, as well as talking about the possible leadership, we talked a lot about the NHS and the problems of the NHS. And a really stark example of this short termism is because it takes eight years to train a doctor, 
There is no political gain for any prime minister to invest huge amounts of money in training doctors because you could be at least one, if not two, general elections away from those doctors appearing on wards. So you get no credit for it. Yeah, and he didn't he announce when um when he was House Secretary under Theresa May announcing a whole bunch of new medical schools, and we haven't yet had the first doctor graduate from yeah. one of them. To what I mean, it it is remarkable, but the cycle problem. Yeah, and he, in fact, I think he said he he set a target to hire five thousand GPs, extra GPs, and by the end of it, he'd ended up with an extra three hundred, because at the same time, a load of other GPs retired, and so he made a net gain of of three hundred, and that, that sort of short. Many. This is a problem with with all po- politicians of all colours of all governments since the dawn of time, isn't it? Just the focus on short termism. It is, and um, I think it's been made worse by the fact we're all living longer. Especially for yeah. the Tories, we're all living longer, and obviously that's uh, it means there's, there's you know the the, the demands are, are are we're using we're using more and more health resources before we we pop our clogs. But for the Tories in particular, you know, by the time. Where do where do future Tory voters come from? Come from, and they come from people who've inherited. Uh, you know, they've 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 got mum and dad's big pile, and and suddenly they they they'll start voting for the Conservative. And the problem is that mum and dad are now living for quite a long time, and uh, you know it's 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 not it's the, the longer it takes to kick in, the worse it is for for um, for the ruling party at the moment. Um, it's it's a it's a, it is a serious sort of time lag for them. I mean, has anyone been good at this, Melanie? I mean, I was, I was sort of I was struck. What was it? Last, yeah, last week we had the local elections. You had Tony Blair in an advert for the Labour Party, and everyone obsessing about Margaret Thatcher's favourite council, as if you know anyone ever spoke about I don't know Douglas Hume's favourite bridge or something. Anyway, it's apparently it was all very significant. But the fact that is it do we only once a generation get to a prime minister who is so intent on fundamentally changing the country they worry less about those. I'm not that they didn't worry about um, short termism, you know, tactical advantage, but actually they had a vision for changing the country which which does end up lasting their legacy lasts much longer than their time in office. They had a vision but also the circumstances were were propitious. I mean, you know, Mrs. Thatcher had had these, the, the you know the, the 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 social housing state sitting there. This estate of of a vast number of houses, yeah. and she had the vision to realise that here was this enormous amount of low hanging fruit that she could she could she could buy she could buy you know a generation of Tory voters with. Um, so I, the problem is that that we've become so much more overdeveloped, over pushed. Everything is being sort of exploited. Capitalism has has got a lot better at being uh, at being capitalism, and I think society now that you know there aren't those opportunities anymore. Um, everything's being sniffed around and explored and, and burnt through already. So it's hard. They have the 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 need for vision, the need for big ideas gets more and more difficult and you need cleverer and cleverer people to come up with them and push them through. I don't mean to depress everyone. (laughs) (laughs) But adopt the brace position, everybody. James is about to make us even more depressed. Go on. But I think one of the things that Margaret Thatcher also had going for her was that things had got really bad. 
you know, it's worth remembering that in 1974, the Tories flirted with, with, with something called sales demand, a kind of forerunner of Thatcherism. But they decided the kind of country wasn't ready for it. And by 1979, after the winter of discontent, it was becoming clear that, you know, this country did need radical change. And, and that was the other thing that she had going for her and i think that you know we all know that for you know for example planning reform would boost the economy but right now we're not prepared as a country to take that political to take that hit for the economic benefit i wonder if we have if if the bank of england forecasts about how grim things are for the next few years are right whether we will we will end up gritting our teeth and saying look actually we have to confront these problems uh, is there, on the on the specific of housing, uh, James, we were struck when we did um, we were down in Westminster for the State Opening of Parliament. We looked back at the 1952 Queen's speech, where um, uh, the Queen had said that the government was going to uh, increase the uh, number of homes being built, and uh, I think back in 1952 they built about 190 thousand houses, and last year we managed about 170 thousand. Um, the government had this target of 300,000, recognising clearly that it was an issue. And they've realised, so they've sort of put it on the too difficult pile. Is there any, is there anywhere that, um, uh, any possibility, any route to any government building the homes that we need, given that, you know, clearly the population has changed both demographically and, and numerically a lot since 1952? I think there is in that, you know, for example, the state owns a huge amount of land you know, former military bases and the like, you know, the state could grant itself planning permission to build houses on that land and directly commission, you know, builders to, to get on with it. You know, you could do that. And that would that would break the power of the big housing developers. And and you wouldn't be interested in kind of dripping these these houses onto the market at a slow rate to kind of keep the prices high. So you, you know, there are things we can do that, that people are just not yet prepared to do them and i also think there is a i also think there is a kind of resistance to building houses that that that, that almost kind of goes beyond the logical people are people are just determined not to see more homes built near them and you know people say oh you know that, that michael gove has this idea biden you know beauty infrastructure democracy environment neighborhood you know if you can make these houses attractive and part of a community not just a kind of dormitory for people working in big cities people will embrace them i, I kind of fear that's not true if you look at the <laughs> development that the, the duchy of cornwall are doing down in in, in faversham and kent you know it, it, it is i mean if prince charles's architecture is your thing it, it's very much that it's built around a kind of cricket pitch and a pub and all this and it's still got Local opposition, and it's still facing um, kind of legal holdups. So, I mean, I think we, I think we, we, we have to kind of, I think those people who own houses already have to be, have to be prepared to accept more of them being built and not using all of their energy and formidable organising skills to try and block any development anywhere. Yeah, I'm not wholly convinced of this plan to um, to hold little refer. I mean, I, I'd have thought by now we'd have realised that maybe referendums are not the solution to everything. <sighs> Uh, but also the idea of, of giving streets the, the power to hold a referendum uh, to approve planning development in an area. I suspect my hunch is the opposite will happen. It, it, a, very few of these referendums will take place. And B, uh, those that do will not embrace the idea of building a row of Georgian terraced houses at the bottom of your garden. Um, and they'll all, they'll all end up hating each other and fighting each other. I mean, it's, it's actually quite funny. <laughs> they really will. They well, will I, fall I, out. It would cause so much local conflict. I mean, 
I uh, I um I hope it is funny because it is actually what I've written my column on tomorrow. Uh, so Ooh. fingers crossed, fingers crossed. It, it turns out it's uh, it's at least vaguely amusing. Uh, let's move on. Uh, if, 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 uh, let's talk about the Bayo Tapestry. Um, uh, the, because, oh, I remember this. I think it was when it was when Macron came to Sandhurst and met Theresa May, and the the big the big thing they managed to agree on is that we might they Emmanuel Macron's going to lend us an old tea towel, essentially. Uh, the the Bayer Tapestry is going to um, uh, is going to return to Britain after nine hundred and fifty years. Are you excited, Melanie? I I think it's wonderful. Um, I mean, I suppose it puts it sort of puts the Northern Ireland Protocol in perspective, doesn't it? It's it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's we you know our, our present difficulties um, our present difficulties uh, look rather small uh, compared to, to compared to this, but it's it, you know it. It's a very wonderful thing. Um, it would be it would be extraordinary if it managed to come now. Um, if, if if it managed to come now, given we've had Brexit, I mean, whoever thought that the, the tapestry would come after we split up with Europe? But um, I, I was going to suggest that we should, you know, what we should really do is add a new bit. It's only seventy meters long. We could add another thirty meters, and we could have we could have. Um, <laughs> We could have a sort of a, a a a fat blonde man falling off his horse and and <laughs> and being sort of crushed by you know trampled on and dodging arrows pursued by angry girlfriends and and you know you could have Macron leading the army of the righteous and you know it would I, I think I think we could we could we could add to it yeah I really K- do Keir, Star- Keir Starmer drinking a flagon of mead. Uh, <laughs> I like this. What could be on the new the new Bay of Tapestry? There's definitely you something in that, James. Yeah, <laughs> you might have to redo your column, Matt. <laughs> there is there. It's it's uh, there's a yes. It's a once it's a once a year uh, experience when I have to when I abandon one. In fact, no. Last week I had about three goes in a column uh, because things kept changing so much. Yeah, I don't like to do that too often, James. As you and I both know, once you've written one, you don't want to be tackling another one. Um, uh, let's talk uh, civil service. It's splashed on the it was on the front of several pages today. Uh, a plan to sack 91,000 or get rid of 91,000 civil service posts. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg wants to go back to 2016 levels of uh, staffing in Whitehall. If only we knew what happened in 2016, which meant there was suddenly a lot of work to be done in Whitehall uh, because maybe jobs that were previously done in a sort of pool thing in another part of... Europe uh, was suddenly coming back here, overseeing Poly. I don't know what happened in 2016, James. Any ideas? Uh, yeah, it, it is, that is a very fair point. I think it is fascinating that uh, they are doing this because uh, it, 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 the whole big question has been that, you know, in the cost of living crisis, you know, one of the things that government could do is, is reduce the cost of government and then basically give voters back some of that money. And it is interesting that this is the idea. That you know that, that you know that, that cutting the civil service numbers down is, is that now. I personally think that cutting civil service numbers down without stopping the state from doing things is going to turn out to be more difficult than they expect. Um, and I also think it is going to not exactly improve the atmosphere of Whitehall, which is already rather tense with kind of Jacob Rees-Mogg wandering around, leaving people's notes saying, um, uh, I hope to meet you soon because I notice you're not at your desk and all, uh, and all of that. And, and so I think this is, I think in some ways, the only way you can achieve a, a head count cut of this size quickly is if the state stops doing some things that it is currently doing 
Um, and I suppose that's it. That's, that's the thing, isn't it? Um, we're in this sort of weird dynamic. On the one, the sort of slightly, you know, the 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 double-headed monster that is the Tory Party. On the one hand, they want to be small state, low tax, while also doing lots of interventionist things uh, and spending lots of money. Yeah, and and we're we're still we're still in the aftermath of dealing with 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 Brexit and the huge COVID um, thing and and. HMRC, DVLA, the passport office, the border force, you know, DEFRA, DCMS, you know, the, the these people are all, um, you know, you cut you the, the massive complaints about all of them, and and nobody can get good service, and where exactly are they going to, to cut staff from? It's uh, we too, the, there is too much going on um for for, for for i don't i don't see how it can happen i really don't yeah and given that one of the big problems the country is facing you know whether it's at the tvla or the passport office apparently not enough people uh getting yeah, on with their yeah. work um uh but anyway I, I as ever the government promising to remove the bad jobs but keep the good ones Melanie Reid and James Forsyth, and of course you can read them in The Times every week. James on a Friday, Melanie on a Saturday. You can read my column in The Times on a Saturday as well. <laughs> Who doesn't want that? Just subscribe, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box. Up next is my interview with Jeremy Hunt. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, let's talk about the NHS. The pride of Britain, its army of brave, skilled and hardworking healthcare professionals who are pandemic heroes. We clapped them on our doorsteps. We clapped the NHS at the opening ceremony of the London Olympics 10 years ago this summer. Yet despite having a bigger budget than the GDP of many countries, wide-scale failures are common, causing avoidable and tragic deaths up and down the country every day. Jeremy Hunt, the longest-serving health secretary in history and now chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee, has written a new book, Zero putting together his ideas on how the NHS can limit those avoidable deaths. Now, I have to say, before I read the book, I thought it might be what you always get from politicians, about how marvellous the NHS is. I mean, there's a bit of that. But it is also a depressing, moving, shocking account 
of how the NHS kills people. Well, not just the NHS, but healthcare systems all over yeah. the world. This is a problem that we have huge numbers of preventable deaths in all modern healthcare systems. And there's a kind of a murder we don't talk about. It's sort of seen as, as uh, the cost of doing business. But it's particularly relevant for the NHS because we're at this pivotal moment after the pandemic. It's a kind of reset moment. And across the political spectrum, everyone recognises it's the top priority for voters. And people want to know how can we make the NHS the safest, highest quality healthcare system in the world. So I hope it is both honest about the problems, but also optimistic in saying there are some solutions. There's some things we could do with the NHS as it is today that would have huge support from doctors, nurses, across the, the millions of people who work in the system. And I, I'd like to stir up a bit of a debate about what those things are and what we need to be doing now. Put some numbers on it for us so that people can get a sense of the scale of the problem that we're talking about. Okay, well, I came to this because the very first of, of many big scandals and issues I had to deal with was mid-staffs. Yeah. And um, I remember uh, talking to the head of the NHS at the time, and he said, you've just got to understand in modern healthcare systems, about 10% of patients are harmed unnecessarily. It's just how it is. And I said, and bear in mind, I knew nothing about the NHS. I've been health secretary for a couple of months. I said, well, how many people actually die? And being the good old NHS, we actually got very good statistics on this, much better than anywhere else. And the answer is about 4% of hospital deaths have a 50% or more chance of being preventable. And then I asked a question I don't think had been asked before. I said, well, how many people is that? Turns out it's about 150 people a week die. This is outside pandemics who shouldn't have died. And um, I thought, that's awful. And I discovered that this is the same in, in France, Germany, New Zealand. Uh, it's higher in America. And I discovered that there is a whole movement of ethical doctors and nurses. It's, it's really called the patient safety movement who think we should not accept this and that there should be no avoidable deaths in healthcare. And that's why I call the book Zero, because I want to pose the question, could we do what they've done in the airline industry, the nuclear industry, the oil industry, and actually say that we are not going to have any preventable deaths or the very, very tiniest amount. One of the things that, that struck me, you sort of go, you mentioned mid-staffs, but there's Morecambe Bay, Winterbourne View, Gosport, Shrewsbury and Telford uh, mo most recently. These sorts of places have become synonymous with, you know, an inquiry, a report, some terrible stories. Everyone thinks, well, that's what a terrible thing's happened there. Then we sort of move on from it, and then another one comes around. And in your book, the same things keep coming around. People dying in pain, dying alone, given the wrong drugs, operated on the wrong body parts, sent home when they shouldn't have been. Relatives say, I'm not sure this is right, and they get ignored. And there's a, it feels like quite, there's a sort of arrogance in the NHS of we know best, and there's no way we've got anything wrong. And whenever a family is spoken out, it's the, re it, it, the worst possible time they've just lost a loved one. And quite often the NHS is closed ranks. Well, I remember that I've been health secretary barely six months and this very quiet, dignified couple from Devon came and saw me in, their in my office. Uh, Scott and Sue Morris, they were called. He's a, a photographer, she's a graphic designer and um, they lost their son, Sam, who was three to sepsis. And they described how for six months they, they went home, they were told it was one of those things that couldn't be avoided, they grieved. And then they began to notice some inconsistencies in Sam's care. 
and they said how when they raised it with the local NHS, the shutters came down, a wall went up. It was like no one would agree to meet them or talk about it. And to begin with, I thought, like you, is this arrogance? Is this uh, a huge establishment closing ranks against the ordinary person? And then I discovered it's not actually arrogance, it's fear. Mm. Because what actually happens in those hospitals is that doctors, nurses, midwives, they make mistakes just like you or I make mistakes. But unlike us, they are brave enough to go into a profession where sometimes when they make a mistake, the price is a tragedy, sometimes even a baby dying. And they are often petrified that if they're honest about what happened, that they made a mistake, they'll just get fired. Because it's the easiest thing in the world for the hospital to say, well, we just, I'm afraid, I'm so sorry about what happened, but we, we had a rotten apple here and we've, we've dispensed with the services of this doctor or that nurse. And the pattern with all these tragedies is that we are really bad at learning from mistakes because there is a blame culture which makes it really difficult for doctors, nurses, midwives, all the people involved in the care of our loved ones to be open and transparent. And that I think is the most troubling thing and that's what you find in medicine all over the world that because what happens is so serious, people dying, that you know lawyers get involved, uh, there are inquiries, the CQC in this country gets involved, NHS England wants to know what happened, the local MP wants to know what happened, and suddenly it becomes really difficult to do the one thing that's actually more important than anything else at all, which is to learn from that mistake so that another family doesn't go through the same tragedy. And actually, what happens is quite often those lessons aren't learned because the system sort of closes, then lots of money gets spent on litigation and compensation, which could have been spent on care, and so the cycle repeats itself. Yes, I mean, we spend more on settling the costs of maternity lawsuits, litigation because of things that have gone wrong when a, a baby's being born, than the cost of every single obstetrician and maternity nurse in the whole NHS. The £2.2 billion cost of settling lawsuits across all areas is more than the cost of running the biggest hospital in the NHS, Bart's Hospital in London. So there's a, an incredible waste of money there but what you find, interestingly, is that there are also some extraordinary examples of hospitals who are getting it right. Mm. I mean, Salford Royal was one I was always very impressed with when I was health secretary under the leadership of David Dalton and Elaine Inglesby Burke. And because they took trouble to learn from mistakes, they ended up not spending all that money you have to spend picking up the pieces, you know, when someone has to have another operation, they have to stay in hospital for longer, you have litigation, management reports, and they ended up with more money to spend on more doctors and more nurses. So they got themselves into a virtuous circle. Talking about funding. Some people listening to this will think, well, you were the health secretary during a large part of, particularly the coalition, during those austerity years. And although the NHS did get extra money compared to other, other departments, particularly cuts to social care, which, you know, cuts to local authorities, which meant cuts to social care, which actually hampers half of the NHS's job of trying to get people out of hospitals and back into, you know, the social care system. Do you think now that that was a mistake and made things worse within the NHS? We had a very, very painful period of austerity. I was part of the cabinet that, that ushered that in. I, I thought, and I think now actually, it was the right thing to do to, to deal with the financial crisis and put the economy back on its feet. But that doesn't mean to say it wasn't very difficult for the NHS. I concluded pretty early on as health secretary that the NHS needed more money and that the 
0.1% annual increase that we were getting uh, was not enough. But publicly, I had to defend that settlement because we have collective responsibility. Privately, I made the argument. And first of all, there was an £8 billion increase that uh, was to support Simon Stevens' five-year forward review. And then there was a, a £20 billion increase. But even those increases, uh, that second increase, ended up just about getting the NHS to its normal rate of increase. It wasn't generous by historic terms, but it was a big step forward from when I arrived. Where I failed was on social care. And there were cuts to the social care budget early on in that austerity period. And I think it was a silent killer. And I think it did have a really bad impact. And I still don't think we put that right today. I tried to get a, a 10 year plan for the social care system when I negotiated it for the NHS and I was told it would have to wait. And then I moved on to the foreign office. But the truth is that if you look at the extreme pressure in the NHS today, um, the stories we've been hearing this week about people having to wait an hour for an ambulance when they have a stroke, we're not going to solve those problems unless we sort out the social care system because we've got too many people we can't discharge from hospitals because there isn't a care package in the community. But when you use the phrase silent killer, you mean people died as a result of those cuts? Well, there are people, yes, I think people die as a result of lack of resourcing in both the NHS and mm. the social care system. We've got to be honest about that. But I think we are beginning to get it right in the NHS. I think in the social care system, we're still not giving local authorities the resources they need to treat every older person with dignity and respect. One of the things that's come up quite a lot actually in the past couple of weeks talked about a whole range of policy issues on the show. The short-termism in politics is a problem. And even though you were in that job for such a long time, you still were unable within the political constraints of, you know, who the Prime Minister was at that particular time, there's an election coming or there's just been a... to really crack even, you know, someone who's in the, long in the, in the same job for a record amount of time, you were unable to crack those long-term issues like social care. And actually, even when you did get extra funding from the NHS, on one occasion, getting George Osmond to agree to it while he was having his hair cut. That was because there was an election coming and the Labour Party might have promised some more money, not because somebody felt inherently it was the right thing to do in order to stop people dying in the NHS. You're absolutely right. We need to be much more strategic. I mean, we know the rate at which the population is ageing. Uh, we know the rate at which we're getting new medicines coming out. And we know that these things are going to become more expensive. And we need to take a much more strategic long-term view. I think I can look at some of the things in the areas I talk about in this book when it comes to patient safety and say that there was some real progress made. I mean, for example, three million more patients were using good or outstanding hospitals by the time I finished compared to when I started. So I think there were some really important changes, improvements in transparency and openness and a willingness to talk about things that went wrong rather than brush them under the carpet. But social care was definitely an area where I wanted to make more progress than I actually was able to make. And I think just as we now have a 10-year plan for the NHS, we absolutely have to have a long-term plan for the social care system as well. Do you think that this sort of elevation of the NHS to, because we didn't clap the DWP at the Olympics, despite the fact that lots of people depend on the benefits it pays out, do you think that the elevation of the NHS actually stops us asking some of these difficult questions? That some people who listen to this or read your book will be shocked at the scale of preventable deaths in the NHS because to highlight that seems almost unpatriotic or blasphemous or something towards this this thing we call the NHS? Well, by coincidence, I was actually culture secretary when we had that great course, scene yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, about the NHS in the Olympics opening ceremony. 
I don't have a problem with it because it speaks to something very British. We weren't actually the first country in the world to set up universal health provision. That was actually New Zealand, but we were the sixth, and we were probably the first really big one. This is my, I suppose this is my point, though. We weren't the first. We're not the best. Why do we elevate it to this strange pedestal that we don't with any other government service? Because thanks to... But it's not that good compared well, to international capacity. It does, does pretty well, but it's not the best. No. That is absolutely true. It's because thanks to the global impact of the NHS yeah. when it was set up in 1948, having universal health care has become part of the definition of a civilised country. Yeah. And nearly every developed country has it, America being the only yeah. the big notable exception. And I think we can be very proud of that. But I think what we also have to say is if part of that vision by Nye Bevan wasn't just that everyone should be able to access healthcare, it's that everyone should be able to access good healthcare. And then if we want to offer the safest and highest quality healthcare, we've got to be honest about where it isn't. So I think what's different about this book is that I am honest about where there are problems. And what I found very encouraging was that when I used to discuss these issues with doctors when I was health secretary, and I'd have them around the table in my office in Victoria Street, no one ever tried to pretend this wasn't happening. Everyone absolutely understood these were the issues and wanted to do something about it. And there was always absolute confidence that we could sort it out. But, you know, we have to be very honest about the core issues. I mean, right now, there is a crisis because we have shortages of doctors in nearly every specialty. And we've got no long-term mechanism for making sure that we're training enough doctors for the future. We also have a massive backlog after COVID over six million people on the waiting list. And I'm worried that we will have another mid-staffs, which is the first thing that I had to deal with because at the moment, it seems to me, the approach that we're taking to dealing with this backlog is another ranch of targets. And we should remember that when mid-staffs happened, it was actually a time of very generous increases in the NHS budget, but managers were overwhelmed with targets. And you know they said, well, look, I've got hundreds of targets, which are the ones that matter. And they were told, becoming a foundation trust, a 95% A&E target, 18-week waiting time. The other ones, do them if you can, but those three matter. And we ended up in, in the worst situations with mid-staffs. And that's what we mustn't allow to happen again. So I think we've got to ask ourselves if we've become addicted to targets. We have more targets in the NHS than any other healthcare system in the world. And the, the risk with targets is that managers and doctors and nurses spend more time looking over their shoulder to their line manager than looking at the patient in front of them. And the, what happens when that happens is that patients become numbers and statistics instead of human beings. And I think we've really got to ask ourselves if that's the right way forward. It's Jeremy Hunt speaking to me, Matt Shorty, here on uh, Times Radio. I was actually talking about his new book, Zero, Eliminating Preventable Harm in Tragedy, in the NHS. Apparently he sent a copy of the book to Sajid Javid, uh, the latest health secretary, but not, so far, the Prime Minister. But if he did, if a copy of the book did find its way onto the desk in number 10 in Boris Johnson read it and he picked up the phone to Jeremy Hunt and said, come on, come in, you've got so many good ideas. Why don't you come back and be health secretary again? Would he do it? I have lost so many grey hairs <laughs> as a result of nearly six years I spent doing that job that I think I, I would hesitate. But people often say, what's the best job you did in politics? And I've done some wonderful jobs and it was an incredible privilege to represent the country as foreign secretary and the country's senior diplomat. And I loved every second of that. But I think being health secretary gets you in, in the gut. 
there's something about the emotional punch of sitting down with a dad like James Titcombe who lost his son Joshua or Carl Hendrickson, another amazing dad who brought his 11-year-old son to see me at the Department of Health and Social Care because he wanted his son to know that he'd taken his concerns about why his wife died and why his, his other son died right to the very mm. top. I think that never leaves you. So in terms of a, another big job in politics then, there's also been lots of speculation about the Prime Minister's future. How many people have come to you and said, Jeremy, would you run next time? Well, you know, when you've done a few big jobs in the Cabinet and uh, the Prime Minister goes through a rocky patch, then you're always going to have that speculation. I personally don't believe that it would be right to have a leadership contest right now because we're in the middle of a terrible war in Ukraine. Uh, you'd have a hiatus of several months in the leadership of the most robust member of the Western Alliance. And I think that you know, President Putin would be delighted. So, um, so I, I don't think this is the moment. But I do think that uh, we would be wrong to say that the setbacks the Conservative Party had are just mid-term blues and there's a big mountain to climb to win the next election. If you, because obviously you, you ran against Boris Johnson to be Prime Minister last time around, if you had to become Prime Minister in that parallel universe, do you think you'd have presided over a culture which saw 100 fines issued by the Met for rule-breaking in Downing Street? I think um, I'd have done some things better than Boris Johnson and I'd have made some mistakes that he didn't make. I think my approach to the pandemic would have been different because I had six years as, as Health Secretary. But on the other hand, I wouldn't have got the majority that he got in the 2019 general election because I don't think Nigel Farage would have stood aside mm. in all the Conservative seats if the Conservatives had been led by someone who voted to remain in the EU. So, you know, I think when you do those big jobs, you realise that you are going to make mistakes. And I think when people read this book, but you they'll wouldn't, see you me wouldn't have had parties in number 10, would you? Um, you know, who knows what I'd, I'd have done lots of things differently. And uh, you might not have been criticising me about that, but you'd have found some other, you're a journalist, Matt, you'd have found <laughs> some other. But can I just, I do well, want... I suppose there's a difference between, you could have an argument, you know, there is clearly an argument about making the calls, and you talk a bit about it in the book, making the calls on the right time for lockdown, you know, the medical consensus at the time. That's, that is a sort of set, but there's a policy. In terms of right to the heart of the culture of number 10, you must be pretty, because I've known you for a long time, pretty appalled by what seems to have been going on in Downing Street while the rest of the country was abiding by the rules? Well, I, you'll forgive me, Matt, but I want to talk about my book um, because that's uh, the thing. But there is one thing that I think is relevant to the NHS with the current difficulties mm. faced by the Conservatives in the local elections, and it's this. Yes, there were definitely some voters who were horrified by the Partygate revelations, but underneath it, I think the reason that we got such a kicking mm was economic concerns that many families had. And we are faced with a situation now where we have very, very low growth, underlying growth in the economy. And to win an election, the Conservative Party has to promise a well-funded NHS and the prospect of tax cuts. If we make people choose between one or the other, we're not gonna win an election. And so I think that for the NHS, the biggest concern at the moment, and indeed the social care system, which which also needs a lot of resources, is the fact that we don't have that growth in the economy we need to pay for these ever-increasing bills. I had James Johnson, who you'll know, because he was the pollster in number 10 joining Theresa May's premiership. We had a focus group. And he, he said he, of all the focus groups and polling he's done in the last few weeks and months, he thinks Partygate might be 
It's damaging for Boris Johnson, he's a rack for Tony Blair's tuition fees for Nick Clegg, something that goes right to the heart of the Prime Minister's relationship with the electorates, which is impossible to shake off. Do you think that's right? I think it's really difficult to judge how long-term these issues are, yeah. but I don't want to minimise the seriousness of what happened at all. But I think the party that wins the next election will be the party that has the best long-term plans to face up to the challenges we have, whether it's uh, protecting democracy in the face of what Russia is doing, whether it's spreading wealth around the country so that the brightest people don't feel they have to leave the poorest areas to get on in life, um, whether it's dealing with the challenges we face in the NHS and the, the care system. And, and so I, I hope this book will be a contribution to understanding what that long-term plan might be for at least the NHS bit of the equation. Just, just finally on the NHS, it's such a big organisation. It was the biggest employer in the country. Is it the biggest employer in Europe? It's the fifth biggest in the world. The fifth actually. biggest employer in the world. It's such an annoying. You, know, you found you were longer there than anyone else. You, you found that you tried to pull levers. You, know, you, you promised to be paperless by 2018. You didn't expect to necessarily still be there to see that that was. You know, you want. You, you rightly said we need more GPs. You tried to recruit 5,000 more GPs. You ended up with 300. There were all the other problems, like you said, with why would a Hmm. Prime Minister now say, well, we're going to recruit X number of doctors because we won't see them for eight years and who knows who'll be in charge by then. One idea that gets it's talked about is just to make it completely independent, like the Bank of England, that actually it runs, it does its own planning, it, it sets its own targets. Do you think that is workable or, because it's so close to the hearts of the nation, you do need some political accountability? I think there's a way you can get through both of those. I think the way we regulate schools is much more effective than the way we regulate healthcare because we basically give heads a budget. They're accountable through their Ofsted inspections, but they have a very high degree of autonomy as to what they do with that budget. Bill Clinton had a, a saying, he said, politics is like working in a graveyard. There are lots of people underneath you, but they're not necessarily listening. And when you're responsible for 1.4 million people in the NHS, 1.7 million people in the care system, it does feel like that as health secretary. And there's a big temptation to say, the way I'm gonna get this done is to have a great big target and come down like a ton of bricks on everyone who doesn't meet my target. And I think there's a real danger in that because what you end up is, is a very, very bureaucratic system. So I hope the lesson we learn going forward is the way we'll make the NHS the safest, highest quality system in the world is actually giving power to the NHS locally to be flexible and fleet of foot enough to do the things that are really gonna make a difference without people always having to look over their shoulder mm. to, to ministerial targets. That's definitely something I wish I'd known at the start of my time. I'm sure you could find lots of <laughs> targets that I was personally responsible for. But the truth about a target is that if you have 100 targets, it's like having no targets because it doesn't have the impact of focusing anyone. And what you end up is with micromanagement. And so I think that's one of the big lessons I hope we learn. You know, my central argument in this book is that we need to be better in the NHS at learning from mistakes. Mm. I hope we can also apply that to politics. Yeah. You know, I hope we can give cabinet ministers the space to learn when they get things wrong. Because, you know, you've got to have the accountability in politics, but you've also got to give people space to learn and grow. And give the Prime Minister a bit longer to learn from his mistakes, maybe. Indeed. <laughs> Jeremy Hunt, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Times Radio. Zero, eliminating unnecessary deaths in a post-pandemic NHS is out next week. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, It's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan ramash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to i'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information